The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Good morning. Appreciate you all being here this morning. We are continuing our study in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10 this morning. Now, last week I did an overview on these verses, and now what I want to do is come back and work through these verses verse by verse. Commenting on these verses that we're looking at, the IVP New Testament commentary states this, because of their absolute and emphatic nature, these statements pose a great challenge to interpretation. Friends, that is putting it mildly, okay? These are some difficult verses. And I talked last week about how difficult this section is, and last week I gave you eight different views on this section. Now, there are more views than eight. I just didn't want to go on forever. But these are the views we looked at, the habitual sin view, which says, you know, he's just he's not talking about sin in general, but you've got to keep on sinning, all right? The sinless perfection view, which says these per- verses mean you come to a place where you never sin again. The not real view, which means he's not even saying this. This is what the opponents were saying. The absolute view takes it as it is and says, yeah, Christians don't sin. The projected eschatological reality view means this is what we'll be like when the Lord comes back. Okay, so it's not like it was then, but this will be like when he comes back. The new nature, old nature view means when you do sin, it's not really you. It's your new nature. Your old nature doesn't. Uh, The contradiction view says this is just plain a contradiction in Scripture. All right. Uh, The specific sin view. Now, saying that this sin it's talking about is not just sin in general, but a very specific sin. Now, do you remember which view I said was the most popular? It's the habitual sin view. This is the predominant view among evangelicals, but it's also the predominant view among those who hold to lordship theology because it supports their view. They argue that 3, 6-9 through nine is saying that those born of God cannot sin habitually. Now this view is based upon the use of the present tense forms of the verbs in 3, 6-9 through nine, when speaking about sinning, which it is argued denote habitual sinning. Many of the modern translations reflect this view. Sadly, the ESV adopts this view and says this, No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning, No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, he can't keep on sinning. Now, as I said last week, the adding of the words keeps on or makes a practice is not justified by Greek grammar. Now, my favorite lordship writer, John MacArthur, holds the habitual sin view, and commenting on this verse, he says this, John the Apostle wrote 1 John, as we know. Eh, maybe not. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John wrote an epistle that deals with the issue of who is really a Christian. To me, this view, you know, they're saying, okay, the reason he wrote this book so we can tell who's really a Christian. It promotes Phariseeism. We start judging each other. Oh, I heard him say this, or I saw them do that. I don't know if they're really a Christian, you know. MacArthur goes on to say, 
But John is concerned for us to understand how to identify a true Christian. So now all of a sudden, we're the ones who determine who's right and who's wrong, and we just look at them and we make this decision. You know, the only thing that can be said for certain about the intended readers based on the content of the letter itself is that they were Christians. 1 John 5.13 says, These things I did write to you, who are believing in the name of the Son of God. So even though we don't know much about the first recipients of this epistle, we do know something very important about them. They were believers. Unlike the fourth gospel that was written to bring people to faith in Christ, the epistle was written to those who already trusted Christ, instructing them how to have fellowship with Yeshua and the Father, how to have an intimate, deep relationship with God. And I see the purpose of this letter as fellowship. John wrote to enable believers to appreciate and deepen their fellowship with Yahweh. Look what he says in the beginning verses, 3 and 4 of chapter 1. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Yeshua the Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, so that you too may have fellowship is a hinna purpose clause with a present active subjective. Now, the main theme of this epistle is fellowship with God. And what we need to understand here is that John expresses this idea of fellowship in a variety of ways in this epistle. Now, to have fellowship with Yahweh is really only found in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 and 1, 6. One of the most common phrases he uses is in him. And when he says in him, he is meaning the same thing in fellowship with him. He uses the word abide. Abide has the same idea, being in fellowship. Another expression for fellowship with God is found um, in to have God or have the Son and to know God. These are all saying the same thing, which is abiding, having fellowship. Now, John MacArthur goes on to say this. Unless a person, John says, and he means John, the writer of this epistle, and other writers of the Bible, unless a person confesses sin, repents of sin, obeys the Word of God, walks as Christ walks, loves brethren, doesn't love the world, lives righteously, that person is not a Christian. Any of you just check yourself off the list? <laughs> no matter what they claim. He says, I don't know why people have so much trouble trying to sort out who a Christian is. People have so much trouble because of definitions like this. Okay? I mean, this would be the absolute ideal of what a Christian should be. How many Christians live like this? Which, according to John MacArthur, would mean they're not Christians at all. Now look what he says. Walks like Christ. If they don't walk like Christ... Now, he says, confesses sin and repents. Then he lists, obeys the Word. You could put all of these except confess of sin and repent. You could put all these under the category of walks like Christ, right? Because Christ obeyed the Word of God. He loved the brethren. He didn't love the world. He lives righteously. All right, so all that could just fit under that one category. He walks as Christ. But what would that mean? That would mean you would be sinless. Would it not? Wasn't Christ sinless? 
wouldn't be to walk like Christ, to walk sinless? We're going to see that in this text. John Eleazar, a.k.a. Lazarus, is not giving us a test to see who's a Christian. I think that just promotes Phariseeism. It promotes judgmentalism. We're all, you know, thinking we got it, but anybody who does something that we don't do, they don't have it. He's telling Christians how to live in an intimate relationship with the Lord. Now, this passage in 1 John 3, 4-9 consists of two short parallel sections. We're going to look at the first one today and the second one next week. These sections are verses 4-6 through and then 8-9. through You'll see they both say the same thing. They each contain three things. First of all, they contain a definition of sin, verses 4 and 8. Sin is lawlessness, verse 4 says. And verse 8 says, sin is of the devil. All right? Then the second one is, it's a statement about the purpose of Christ's work. Verse 5 says, Christ came to take away sins. Verse 8 says, Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Then the third point is a statement about the implication of Christ's work for the Christian life. No one who abides in Christ sins, verse 6. No one who is born of God sins, verse 9. So we're going to work through these three today, and next week the second section work through these three again. Now remember something we said last week. 1 John 3 is writing with two distinct and radically different groups in mind. He's not writing to two different groups. He's writing about two different groups. He's writing to believers, but he says this in verse three, chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that didn't know Him. So these two groups here are the children of God and the world. When he gets to verse 10, he clarifies the term the world as used here means children of the devil. So he's talking to children of the God. We have children of God and children of the devil. All right, with that in mind, let's kind of look at this text. Let's look at verse 3 first. We kind of did this, but I want to remind you because 3 and 4 really are connected. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. All right, everyone who has this hope. This is the equivalent of John's expression, whoever believes in Him. In the Greek, the grammatical structures are the same. It's pas, ho, followed by the participle. So everyone who has this hope, everyone who believes, he's saying the same thing. So the individual who has this sure hope of being like the Savior, has this hope because they have believed in Christ. He says he purifies himself just as he is pure. Now the phrase purifies himself points to the causality of the believer's faith in Christ. When a person responds to the gospel message by believing it, he can be said to cause the purification which automatically follows as part and parcel of his belief because he is washed. The watching of regeneration. He receives the spiritual bath, so to speak. Alright? So, everyone who believes in Him has purified Himself. Now, I believe this is teaching that to have this hope is to have believed on Him, and to have believed in Him is to be purified. The only way that we can be as pure as He is pure is to have His righteousness. And this righteousness was the, belief, was the believers who he's writing to, they had this righteousness 
prior to the coming of Christ in the already but not yet form. Now, we talked about that during the transition period. They had it because they were promised they were going to get it. But it was already but not yet. Now, then he contrasts those who have a purifying hope with those who are lawless. And here we see a first definition of sin. Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, sin here uh, was last used in 2.12, but now we have a succession here of five verses in which it's repeatedly used. It's used ten times in these five verses. Now, I said last week that Colin Krauss says that anomia, which is the word here for lawlessness, may be the key to the correct translation of this passage. Most translators make this sound like a, a disregard, like this is just a disregard for the law. Notice how the complete Jewish Bible renders this. Everyone who keeps sinning is violating Torah. Indeed, sin is violation of Torah. Now, this is what may be called the root fallacy, which is making etymology rather than usage the key to a word's meaning. And we've talked about this many times, all right? Etymology is the dictionary definition. You can't use the dictionary to decide this word means this. Because usage, how the writers use it, always takes precedent over etymology. Why is that? Why does usage always take precedent? Because word change their meaning over time. So you have to understand how did that author use that word? What was his meaning? And I've used the illustration, you know, if I gave you a book and said, I want you to scan this, scan through it. I don't mean put it on a scanner, but to scan the, you know, you would think, okay, that means to go through it lightly, right? A hundred years ago, to scan something meant to read it in depth, in English. So that English word, you don't, what does that mean? We have to know how it's used, all right? So the word anomia occurs here in, the, in this epistle, only here. This is the only time he uses this word. And the word law, which is namas, is completely absent. And this makes it hard for me to understand why John would introduce the idea of law-breaking at this point. Now, here's what we do. We often associate sin with law-breaking because Paul ties that together in his epistles. Paul says this in 3.20. He says, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, the preposition through here is in the Greek dia, it implies the law is the instrument of knowing or realizing, recognizing sin. In other words, the law tells us what sin is. It spells it out for us. That's what Paul's trying to tell us here. Look what he says in Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. You understand that, right? What makes something wrong? God says it's wrong, right? That's what makes it wrong. If God didn't say it's wrong, it's not wrong. Now, I know a lot of people today make up new stuff. They're inventing sins every day and they're saying it's wrong, but if the Word of God doesn't. Paul said, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You understand that. Once the law was given, each act or attitude then could be labeled as a transgression because God said, don't do that. So sin is a transgression of the law. But that is not what John is telling us. He's talking about a specific kind of sin when he uses the word anomia. In the Septuagint, 
which is the Greek translation of the Tanakh. We find anomia used to translate no less than 24 different Hebrew words. The most frequent one is the Hebrew word avan, for which the English words like wickedness or iniquity are good equivalents. In the Septuagint's more than 220 occurrences of anomia, it is clear that an utterly despicable transgression is denoted. For example, let's look at a few of the uses in the Septuagint. The first one's in Genesis 19.15 in the Brenton translation of the Septuagint. He says, But when it was morning, the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and the two daughters whom thou hast, and go forth, lest thou also be destroyed with the iniquities of the city. Now, the writers of the Septuagint use the Greek word anomia here to refer to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what sin are they referring to by anomia? Well, Jude tells us. So let's go to Jude and get a definition of exactly what they're talking about. Jude 1.7. He says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursue unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And he says likewise here. The word likewise is homoios, and it means resembling, similar, of equal degree or manner. Um, and what he's saying here, what is likewise? It's likewise, verse 6, he's talking about the angels who sinned, and then in 7 he says, so did Sodom and Gomorrah sin likewise. They sinned like the angels of verse 6. So he's linking their sin to a sexual sin, and that goes back to Genesis 6. So the people of Sodom and Gomorrah did essentially the same thing the angels did, they left their normal place. They indulged in sexual immorality. Now this is from the Greek word ekpornuo, from ek which means out or from, and pornuo which means to commit fornication or lewdness. It indicates a heightened form of sexual immorality. He also says that they pursued unnatural desires. The word pursued here, aperkomik, aper Komai, which is from apo, meaning separation, and erikomai, meaning come or go. It literally means to go away or depart, but it's used in a metaphorical sense. Vincent says the force of apo is a way, turning away from purity, going after strange flesh. Aperikomai is aorist participle indicating have gone. So aperikomai is followed by the word opiso, which means after, a position behind or back. Now in Mark 1.20, it's used of James and John having leaving their father and going after Yeshua. In John 12.19, it's used of the phrase, the world has gone after him. The compound expression, aperikomai opiso, indicates a departure from the established order in nature to follow a practice contrary to nature. Deserting the established male-female relationship they deliberately pursued a relationship with unnatural desire. Now, what's interesting here is that unnatural desire, which is sarkos heteros, cannot be a reference to homosexuality. For several reasons. Sarkos heteros. Homosexuality is not a pursuit of hetero. Different gender. All right? It's a pursuit of homo, same gender. So heteros, they're pursuing something different. Secondly, homosexual behavior involves 
the same human male flesh, not different flesh as it would with angels. And thirdly, when the New Testament refers to the unnaturalness of homosexual acts, it uses the phrase parafusin, which means contrary to nature, Romans 1.26. So Jude is telling us that those in Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in sexual immorality, which was homosexuality, and they pursued unnatural desire, which was interspecies sexuality between angels and humans. It is with this sin, interspecies sexuality, that the writers of the Septuagint use the word anomia. So that gives you just a flavor of anomia and how defiled it is. He said, this is a sin, a, a violation of heaven and earth. All right, let's look at another use of anomia in the Septuagint. It's used in 1 Chronicles 9.1. And this all is all Israel, even their enrollment. And these are written down in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah with the name of them that were carried away to Babylon for their transgressions. And transgressions is anomia. So here we are told that it was because of anomia that God's people were taken into captivity into Babylon. Now, that's in the Septuagint. Let's go to the New Testament. In the New Testament, anomia is used 18 times in 13 verses. And if you look them all up, you'll see that they are specific, referring to a specific sin which is often contrasted with righteousness. So he very often puts these two opposed to each other. I would say that anomia, by its New Testament usage, is referring to a sin of rebellion or unbelief. That anomia can be referring to the sin of unbelief is seen in Yeshua's words, for example, Matthew 7.23. He says, And then will I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of Anomia. All right, here Yeshua is saying that those who are committing anomia, he's telling them to depart. I don't know you. I never knew you. Because this is unbelief. This is rebellion against God. In Matthew 13, 41, he says, The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of anomia. So this is a reverse rapture. The angels are going, pulling out all the bad people, okay? All the unbelievers. They're removed from the kingdom of God. Matthew 23, 28. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous. So you look at them, oh, they, they seem like they're righteous, he says, to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and anomia. So here we see a contrast between righteousness, which they weren't, but they appeared to be, and anomia, which they really were. We also see this in uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Uh, yeah, 6.14 here. It says, don't become partners with those who do not believe. Alright, so we're talking about unbelievers. And he asks them, what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship between light and darkness? So, here it is those who don't believe who are anomia. And I would encourage you to look up the rest of the uses of anomia in the New Testament for yourself. You'll find that it's used... For example, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 2, 7 to describe the man of lawlessness. This and other references suggest that the word signifies rebellion against the will of God. To commit this sin is thus to place oneself on the side of the devil and the Antichrist and to stand in opposition to Christ. So I think this, you know, just by the use of it in Septuagint, by the use to the New Testament, 
by its usage, we see this is a strong sin. Now, in 1 John 3, 4, it says, everyone who commits sin, and that's directly parallel in the New Testament elsewhere, to Yeshua's, only to Yeshua's words in 8, 34. He says, everyone who commits sin, 1 John 3, 4. John 8, 34 says, Yeshua responded, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And in 8.34, he's talking to the Pharisees who don't believe in him. And so he said, you're a slave to sin. So, I think, well, how do I say this? It's possible that all ten of the uses of sin, in 1 John 3 here, are referring to anemia, the sin of unbelief, the sin of rebellion against God. But I'm thinking that maybe in verse 6, He's using sin in a more general way. Now, can he do that? Can he use it strictly here in one way? I don't know. These are difficult verses, but when we get to verse 6 here, I'll I'll share with you why I think this. All right? We'll talk about that in a minute here. All right, let's go to the second statement. This is a statement about the purpose of Christ's work. We see this in both sections. He says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sin. In him there is no sin. All right, you know. In other words, he's appealing to general knowledge. The knowledge involved here is that Yeshua came to take away sins. He's saying that's so basic to the apostolic preaching that you're all familiar with that. You know that. It's part of the gospel message that you received from the beginning. Back to John 1.1. He says, that which was from the beginning. And he means the beginning of the gospel message. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands. He's saying Christ We saw Him. We touched Him. He was here. Concerning the Word of Life, that life was made manifest. And we have seen it. And we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So that He appeared, that He was made manifest, was what they had heard from the very beginning. Now, He appeared here as an aorist passive indicative which speaks of Yeshua's incarnation. The same verb phanerao is used twice in verse two, or yeah, twice in verse two, three two of his second coming. But here it refers to his incarnation, the fact that he became a man. Now watch John one one. He says, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." So the Word is God. Now drop down to verse fourteen. The Word, which was God, became flesh, and dwelt among us. Now, this knowledge of Christ appearing would go directly against the Gnostic claims. These false teachers were coming in and they were teaching a dualistic doctrine. They taught that the flesh, the material world, was essentially evil. Anything in the material world is is evil. The spiritual world is righteous and good. So from that, they would conclude that because the material is evil that the body ultimately is going to be burned up at the end. That's what they taught. It doesn't matter what you do with the body because the flesh is going to perish. It only matters what you do in your spirit. So as long as you're all right in your spirit, you can do whatever you like to do in your flesh. Another name for this was antinomianism. And this was a reaction against the Judaizers because the Judaizers were coming along and saying, yes, you need to believe in Christ, but... You also need to get circumcised and you need to keep the law and you need to keep all these rituals. Well, they kind of swung the opposite direction and said, we're not keeping that law. We're not keeping any laws. 
All right? Any of the principles of Christ. All that matters is the spiritual realm. We can indulge the flesh all we want to. It's evil. And because they held that view, they denied that Christ had come in the flesh. They denied the incarnation. Because God couldn't take on flesh because flesh was evil. So they taught that Christ was a phantom, a ghost, because the material, the flesh, is evil. So they said, how could God's Son take on evil? So they denied the incarnation. And as we'll see in chapter 4, John says, you can't deny the incarnation and be a Christian. They denied that Christ actually died and physically rose. They denied those things. He appeared in order to take away sins. That's why He came. He came to deal with the problem of mankind's sin. Now Luke wrote that Yeshua's purpose in coming was to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19.10. Ezekiel said somebody else was going to come and seek to save the lost. You know who it was? It was Yahweh. Yahweh said, I will seek and save the lost. And here Christ says, He came to seek and save the lost. Well, how could He do that? Because He is Yahweh. Okay? Matthew implied that the purpose of Yeshua's coming in His interpretation of the name he says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name not Jesus. Mary never called him Jesus. They had no name Jesus back in that day. She called him Yeshua. And here's what it says. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. The name Yeshua means Yahweh saves. He's going to save his people from their sins. So, the basic fact in these expressions is that Yeshua has done something for man which He couldn't do for Himself. He came for the purpose of saving mankind, of redeeming mankind. He came to take away sin. This is the same verb as when John the Baptist saw Yeshua coming and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is telling us how Yeshua will bring salvation and redemption to mankind. And See, the Jews had this idea he was going to be a warrior. Messiah would be a warrior. He would be like David. He would come as a warrior and rid the, uh, them of their enemies. Not as a lamb, which would be a sacrifice for the people. And see, these people, when, when John the Baptist said this, behold a lamb of God, they understood sacrifice. But they didn't understand human sacrifice. That was forbidden. But here comes John and he identifies this man as a sacrifice for sins of the people and as the Messiah, the Chosen One. So this is God's Lamb. And he calls him the Lamb of God, meaning provided by God. In other words, the Lamb of God is the Lamb that God provided in the sense that He is the origin of the gift of the Lamb. You know, this is what Abraham said to his son Isaac when they're on the mountain, Mount Moriah. Remember, they're going up there to sacrifice? And Abraham said, you know, Isaac says, hey, dad. And he says, uh, here I am, son. And he says, um, we got fire and we got wood. Where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? You know, he's scratching his head like, dad, I don't get this. <laughs> how do you respond to your child as a father in that instance? Well, here's how Abraham responded. He said, God will provide for himself the lamb. Amen? Amen. Amen. God provided a lamb. For a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And you know the story, he gets up and he puts his son on the altar and he goes to sacrifice his son and God stops him and then he no turns and notices there's a lamb, a ram, stuck 
in the thorns. He's got a crown of thorns on his head and here's the lamb that God has provided. God will provide the lamb. Prophecy so long ago, God provided a lamb for us. He appeared to take away sins. Take away here signifies atonement and that by substitution. This is so important that we understand the idea of substitution. All right? Christ, as a substitute, dies in our place to pay for our penalty. So he's a penal substitute, a substitute who bears the penalty that was due us. And that's why people, when we get to heaven, you don't have to walk in with your head down like, you know, I kind of messed up. My sin has been paid for. Every bit of it. Completely, totally, in full by Christ. He died so that sinners who trust in Him don't experience God's judgment. Takeaway is also in the present tense signifying ongoing sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. The sin is paid for. God's not overlooking something. He's not like us, you know, forgiving parents as, oh, that's okay, I told you not to do that, but we'll let you slide this time. No. You broke the law, somebody's got to pay. Christ paid for you. Now what sin is he talking about here? I think he's primarily the greatest sin the unpardonable sin is the sin of unbelief. Look at what Yeshua said. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in Me. That's really the essence of sin. Sin is unbelief. That's the reason Adam fell. He fell and Eve fell before they ever took the fruit. They fell when they failed to believe the Word of God. As a result, they reached out and took the fruit and they fell. Sin is unbelief. And then he says this, in him there is no sin. That Yeshua was himself without sin is the consistent testimony of the New Testament. He was a sinless substitute. He had to be. If he had sinned, he'd have to pay for his own sin. Because he didn't sin, he could be our substitute. Look at Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. You know what he's saying here? He's saying Christ is a man. He knows what it's like to hurt like a man. To hurt like a person. He knows what that means. He says, but one who is in every respect has been tempted. We are. He knows what temptation is. He's been tempted yet without sin. He hasn't sinned. Peter says, 1 Peter 2.22, He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Yeshua's sinlessness is the basis for His vicarious substitutionary atonement on our behalf. As the sacrificial animal had to be unblemished, remember the Passover lamb? They had to examine it. They had to make sure there was no blemish in that lamb. The same thing with Christ. He's the sacrificial lamb. That was the precondition of His atoning sacrifice. Sinlessness. A prophecy of Isaiah hints at this, speaking of the suffering servant, as one who had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah 53.9 So how do we conceive this idea of Christ being without sin? You, know, you ever think about it? Here's a, here is, he became a man, but he was totally sinless. Well, one writer has come up with this, and I thought it was interesting, so I'm going to share it with you. Here's his view on what it means for Christ to be sinless. How do we conceive of him as without sin? He is before us as one in whom there is no sympathy with what is vile and polluting, or with what is mean and base, 
or with what is unfair and untrue, or with what is dishonorable and unhandsome, or with what is unkind, ungenerous, unloving, not a thought, not a feeling, not an affection, is in him that could offend the purest taste, the most fastidious delicacy, benevolence without the slightest alloy of selfishness, integrity without the breath of suspicion cannot touch seraphic, seraphic mildness, sweetness, calmness that no storm of passion has ever ruffled, a soul attuned to all the melodies of heaven on which no jarring note of earth's discord can ever strike, a divine dignity, a divine gracefulness in look and mien, in air and carriage, infinitely removed from man's uncertain temper and the rude strife of tongues. Some such ideal, some such picture, rises before our eyes. And then he goes on to say it's not simply a negation of things. He writes, it is no mere negation, no mere abstinence from evil or abstinence of evil, nor is it any mere spontaneous development of native, innate good. It is positive, practical, perfect obedience to God's holy law. It is the doing of His will with the whole heart. It is to live for no other end but that which His will be done. So it is His life did He manifest His sinlessness who said, I must be about my Father's business. The cup which my Father giveth me, shall I not drink it? John writes, in Him is no sin. Alright, I think that's kind of a great picture there. We think of His sinlessness. He was separate from sinners, all right? And then the third statement we have here is a statement about the implication of Christ's work for the Christian life. In verse 6, he says, Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him nor known him. All right. Why they translated this word remains, I'm not sure. This is the word, Greek word mano, which means abide. So everyone who abides in Him, he says, does not sin. It's absolute. And here's where I'm thinking that maybe anomia is not used here. Maybe that's not the intention of verse 6. Verse 6 might stand in direct contrast to 9. We get to 9, he says, everyone born of God. That's every Christian. Doesn't sin. But here he says, everyone who abides in Him does not sin. Now, the word remains, the word seen him, the word known him, these are all terms that John uses for abiding. We could translate it this way. Everyone who abides in him does not sin. Everyone who sins is not abiding in him. It seems to me that John is saying to abide in a sinless person would mean we wouldn't sin. Does that make sense? Compare these translations. ESV, no one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. The CSB, Christian Standard Bible, says everyone who remains in Him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen Him. And I think the, the CSB here is correct in the text you read, everyone who remains does not. Because the Greek uses the present tense, it is asserted that this tense necessitates a translation like, no one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. This would mean that the believer who abides in Christ 
may sin somewhat. Now, how much is really never specified, but you can sin a little bit, okay? If you want to take that translation. But he can't sin regularly or persistently. But on all grounds, whether linguistic or exegetical, this approach is indefensible by the text. As has been pointed out by more than one competent Greek scholar, the appeal to the present tense invites intense suspicion. No other text can be cited where the Greek present tense, unaided by qualifying words, can carry this kind of significance. You can't just add, keeps on. Notice what John wrote earlier. Verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Then here he says everyone who abides in him doesn't sin. Now let me ask you something. Wouldn't walking in the same way in which he walked include sinlessness? Wouldn't it include sinlessness? Do this. Listen, it would have to, right? Because verse 5 says, in him there was no sin. He was sinless. His life was sinless. To walk like him would to not be in sin. So the believer who is abiding in Christ, listen to me, does not sin. It's not saying the one who abides in him doesn't keep on sinning. It's saying who abides in him doesn't sin. Now, hang on a second. I see abiding here i.e. being in an intimate relationship with Christ, as a conditional relationship that can be interrupted or terminated after it's begun. In other words, sometimes you're abiding in Christ, sometimes you're not. All Christians are called to abide, to walk as He walked. Every one of us are called there. At times we abide in Christ, and when we are abiding in Christ, and by abiding I mean you're consumed with the Word of God. Your focus, your thought life is on Christ. Your desire is to honor Christ. Your desire is to bring glory to Him. You're not thinking about yourself, what I want, what I need, whatever. You're focused on Him, and you're not sinning. Is that possible? Yes, we talked about that last week. Hopefully we go days without sinning. Right? Because we're abiding. At other times, we don't abide. We're angered, we're frustrated by the world situation, and we get in ourselves, and you know it's like we're not abiding at all. And we sin. Now, commenting on this verse, one commentator writes this. Abide is John's word for fellowship. Okay, that's so far I agree with him. But we need to understand that in his mind, every Christian abides in Christ. Really? Now he said, now this is a typical view. This is probably the predominant view. Abiding in Christ and being a Christian, they say are the same thing. The idea that there are two types of Christians, those who abide in him and do not sin, and those who do not abide in sin, was foreign to the apostles' thinking. Was it really? Was it foreign to his thinking? Then why does Yeshua and why does John both tell believers to abide? If every Christian abides, do you need to be told to abide? If it's something Christians do, do you need to be told to do it? I don't think so. Why would I be told? To, well, that's like saying every Christian should be told to be a Christian. Well, I am a Christian. Why would you tell me to be a Christian? Well, why would you tell someone to abide if they are already automatically abiding? Let's back up for a second. We just went over this not that long ago, but John 15, 3 and 4 
Very significant text. Yeshua says to His disciples, already are you clean? What does He mean by clean? They're born again. You go back to 13. He says, you're clean, but not all of you. Why weren't they all clean? Judas was there. You're clean, He's saying. You're born again. Because of the word that I've spoken to you. Then He says this in verse 4. Abide in Me. So Yeshua is telling Christians, abide in Me. I want you to follow Me. I want you to have an intimate relationship with Me. We see the same thing in 1 John 2.28. And now, little children. The little children here, the Greek word is technia, which means offspring. It has nothing to do with age. He's talking about those who have been born of the Father. Those who are born again. And He tells them, abide in Him. Christians abide. This is what we saw Yeshua say in 15, 3, and 4. It's the same thing. We're called as Christians. Non-believers can't abide in Christ. Only believers can. But so many do not. So he says, everyone who remains in Him does not sin. What I see John saying in verse 6 is that as long as a person abides in Christ, he will be free from sin. I said last week that I think sometimes we have a sin mentality that we think everything we do is sin. You know, I'm a sinner, I'm a rotten sinner. No, you're a born-again child of God. You should not be sinning. So we don't need this sin mentality where everything we do is sin. There's times we do sin. But we need to realize that most of the things we do are righteousness. Now, I think there's maybe good pastoral advice here. Everyone who remains in Him doesn't sin. And I think the best counsel for a person who's facing temptation is not, don't do it. (laughs) That doesn't help a whole lot because that just makes us focus on what we're trying not to do, right? But to say, abide in Christ, which turns the person's attention positively towards the Savior and diverts it from the temptation. And when we are consumed with Christ, we're in the Word of God, when we're in prayer, when we're desiring that we honor Him by the things we say, by the way we live, we're not going to sin. And that's what we're called to do. Verse 7 says, practice is righteousness. In the ESV. In other words, he's practicing it. Okay, He's working on it, right? But the CSB says in verse 7, let no one deceive you, the one who does what is right is righteous. Now he says here, little children, don't let anybody deceive you. That means that moral deception is possible. That's why he's warning them against these false teachers. I don't want you to be deceived by the heretics that are in your midst. It's a tender kind of appeal. He appeals to them as children. Technia, which means believers. Don't be deceived. He says the one who does what is right is righteous. Now this is the same thing that he said in 2.29. If you know that he's righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of Him. Born of God. Same thing. The children of God have a family resemblance to their Father in Heaven. He's righteous, and He produces righteousness in every Christian. Now, God is righteous, and is therefore the source of all righteousness. When a man is righteous, we know that the source of his righteousness comes from God. It is the righteousness that he did not possess in his fallen nature, but acquired at the new birth. So Paul in Corinthians says that believers are righteous and unbelievers are anemia. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What partnership do they have? See, the lawlessness, the anomia, is unbelievers. But Christians are righteous. Or what fellowship is light and darkness? And John plays on those themes, light and darkness. He says you can't say that you're in fellowship with God while you're walking in darkness. You can't do that. See, these, these opponents that he's writing against were claiming to be in fellowship with God. He says you can't do that while living in sin. The writer of Hebrews says that Yeshua loved righteousness and hated anomia. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated anomia, wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The one who does what is right. Now, let me suggest something here for your consideration. Could the one who is right here be referring to the one who believes in Yeshua? Would that would be believing being doing what was right? You know, we often think of this in terms of well, some you know activity or something, but the one who does what is right, the one who believes in Yeshua, it could refer to believers here. He is said to be righteous just as he is righteous. The only way to be righteous as Christ is to have Christ's righteousness which we receive through faith in Him. Right? So that He's righteous as Christ. The one who does that, don't be deceived. These people, they're not believers. They're not you know, confessing Christ has come in the flesh. They're denying this. They're not righteous. Because they're not doing what is right which is believing on the Son. Believers, all believers, have the righteousness of Christ. And we have it through faith in Him. Not This is not talking about, I don't think, things that we are doing. It's talking about who we are because of who we are in. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning. Lord, I pray that You would give us the heart of Bereans and we would search this text out to see if these things are so. Lord, I come confessing, I'm just overwhelmed by this text, Lord. There's so many different angles I just quite don't understand, but that's how I see it at the moment. And I pray that you would uh, give us a spirit, Lord, to delve into this text and dig out what's there and to live before you, Lord, a life of righteousness. Father, I pray that we would come to understand, Lord, that by abiding in you, we will not be sinning. We'll be living a righteous and a holy life before the world when we walk with you. May we desire, Lord, an intimate relationship with you. May we not love the world, Lord, but may our love be directed only towards you. Amen.